0: It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defence Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, Great to
1: be here. Still COVID-free, so can't complain.
0: Indeed. We're almost to the finish line. That vaccine seems to be all people are talking about these days, which I find quite hopeful.
1: That's right. Just keep clicking refresh on that uh,
0: news site. Eventually, it'll be here. (laughs) Absolutely. Some interesting developments today from the Supreme Court of Canada dismissing leave of application in what's being called a Mr. Big case. Now, this is a term that you've educated us with respect to before. What
1: happened today? Well, uh, I must say Mr. Big is an operation that just keeps giving and giving from a law a law or an investigative perspective I should say. Uh the basic uh idea of Mr. Big operation is that um the police will uh, have a undercover police officer uh meet somebody who's a suspect in a uh, criminal investigation, usually murder or something of some significance. And then they will spend ordinarily a number of months with uh usually a whole host of undercover police officers involved, uh, gaining the trust of the suspect uh, and leading them to believe that this group of undercover police officers are some form of a underworld criminal organization and they will get the trust of the suspect by having them go and do uh, fake tasks uh, for the uh, fake undercover or fake uh, criminal syndicate. Hmm. Things like one of the classic ones was, you know, deliver these diamonds on a train to Toronto, you know, things of this sort, right? Hmm. And they will develop trust and usually pay the suspect and sort of uh, encourage them that they will could become a member of this lucrative uh, criminal underworld. And then eventually what they'll do is say, look, Uh, you know, we're able to, uh, you know, we've got access to all kinds of corrupt officials. We're able to take care of uh, uh, problems in your past, but we need to know about them if we're going to be able to solve them for you. So, you know, you've you've got to show your loyalty and tell us about some other heinous thing you've done to try to get the person to then say, oh, yes, I murdered that person (laughs) six months ago, which is, of course, what the police are trying to investigate. So that's what a Mr. Big Operation is. Uh, and they are successful. They've run hundreds of times. Uh, the problem is that they can be too successful Hmm. Uh, in that there are multiple examples of people who did not commit the murder. I was going to say who lied. Yeah, yeah, they lied because they wanted to be part of this lucrative criminal underworld or because they fear that they're going to be, you know, whacked by the Mr. Big Mob boss or whatever it might be. And so we have multiple examples of where people who we know just didn't do it (laughs) wind up saying, oh, yes, yes, you know, I'm the perfect new member of your criminal organization, right? I've murdered all kinds of people, right? (laughs) Jimmy (laughs) Hoffa. You you wouldn't know them. Everyone. I killed everyone. I'm fantastic. (laughs) Hire me. So that's the worry. And we've had examples of people who were convicted and jailed. And then we later determined, no, they they just didn't do it. And so a a few years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada, in a case called Hart, set out uh, some principles designed to stop innocent people from being convicted by this process. Uh, And now those kind of confessions are what they call presumptively inadmissible, unless the crown can establish that on a balance of probabilities, the probative value of the confession outweighs its prejudicial effect. Hmm. Uh, And then as well, the second prong, there wasn't an abusive process. Now, the first part of that weighing, the probative value, would often involve things like, is there something to independently confirm the confession? Like, for example, when the person says, uh, you know, I... uh, murdered the person by, you know, uh, killing them and then tucking a diamond in their mouth or something. Right. And nobody's aware of that fact. It was hold back evidence that might be shown as look, this is very probative because no one would know that other than the person who committed the the murder. Yes. Uh, And the second part can involve things like, you know, are the police involved in criminal activity and so on, trying to get the person to confess, simulating violence and so on. So, The particular case that was decided today by dismissing a leave application to the Supreme Court of Canada involved one of these Mr. Big operations that went down a few years ago. And it was actually a Russian doll nesting Mr. Big operation, you might call it, because they were doing this Mr. Big operation on a suspect in an unrelated murder And during this unrelated Mr. Big operation, trying to get this person to confess to some other murder. Yes. let You know, they the usual thing. Okay, do these various operations. Okay, you've got to tell us about one so we can clean it up, make sure there are no loose ends and protect you. And the person admitted to a different murder. (laughs) Well, by the way, I murdered this other person in Vancouver. And so that's how this case got going. Uh, And so this appeal was the person who confessed to doing a contract killing for $15,000 of a woman in Vancouver uh, on behalf of uh, her uh, husband uh, and the husband's lover, basically, uh, and the man said, "Look, the husband's lover paid me fifteen thousand dollars to kill this woman." And then he described in great detail how he did it, including various information about what the house looked like and some holdback information, which was stabbed her twice in the back. Interesting. And so that's the basis upon which the in large part the uh, it was found to be. Uh, sort of the high probative value because yes. of this information only the killer would have. Yeah. But the one of the arguments made on the appeal, amongst others, was an interesting one saying, look, the person who was the, the killer, the contract killer, who was the suspect or subject of this original Mr. Big operation that led to this case, um, the police had done things including uh, having him uh, go to Saskatchewan um, contrary to conditions that he had been on at the time. He was, uh, on some unrelated matter, ordered to remain in British Columbia. And the police got him to breach those conditions, deleted the conditions from the police computer system so that other police would not be aware of them, um, and then also allowed him to do various other things in breach of the order that he was on in British Columbia. Like he had an order not to be drinking and not to be going out past curfew and not to be leaving B.C. Interesting. And this, the police... Encouraged him to violate all those things and didn't stop him from doing things that were prohibited And so part of the argument was well look this is a abusive process, right? You've got the police, uh, you know engaging in uh, Criminal activity by having this person do things. He was they knew he wasn't allowed to do facilitating them by taking the conditions out of the police computer system for example and so that was a large part of his uh, uh, Argument both in the BC Court of Appeal where it didn't work Uh, And his leave application to the Supreme Court of Canada saying, look, you know, even if you get past that first part of the test on these Mr. Big things, the probative value versus prejudicial effect, the court ought not to sort of countenance or allow uh, evidence of this kind, the confession to the Mr. Big uh, undercover police officer to go in when the police are having the person engage in criminal activity. That was the argument. Interesting. It didn't get traction. So the the upshot for the contract killer and the Mister Big case and the husband, who was also uh, convicted, um, are that uh, they are going to continue serving their sentences. Uh, but I think you, you just I find these cases overwhelmingly interesting because of how similar the investigative techniques are. Yeah. And there was even a, a case that I recall in BC where there was a killing in Washington State where the suspects. We're actually watching a news show about a Mr. Big operation. <laughs> well, they were the subject of a Mr. Big operation. And the police said, oh, this is it. It's over. These guys, we're, we're, our cover is blown. Oh, we're no. having to do Turn exactly the same the They're watching a news report about it. <laughs> But nonetheless, they just didn't catch on and oh. carried on with the operation. So it's worked hundreds of times. The worry is that sometimes it just works a little too well.
0: Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. funny. I could just see the awkward conversation, like the the undercovers in the room with them, and they sort of look at them as the TV's on, <laughs> putting it all together. What do what you say in that particular? I have to go now. I just got to go. I don't goal. know about this.
1: Anyway. Uh. Fake news, fake news. <laughs> the door. I, I,
0: always, I always shake my head because I can't put myself in the state of mind for a person who either. Those are ought to know, in effect, that they are auditioning for the part of the loose end in a criminal conspiracy that would be tied up or
1: eliminated at some point in future, and yet they do it. They do it. They do it time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's a combination of people like the attention, I think, is part mm-hmm. of it. Uh, people like the money, yeah. uh, right? People, they're, they're getting paid for all of these things very well. They'll put them up in hotels and pay them cash, and it seems kind of, you know, suddenly you're 007, yeah. uh, and uh, really you're just the pawn in this operation. But it's worked. I think the stats from the Supreme Court of Canada, when they came out with that uh, decision, Uh, finding that presumptively these kind of confessions are not admissible, is by that time there had been uh, 350 (laughs) of these operations, some of them, of course, leading to innocent people being convicted, but nonetheless, it's worked hundreds of times. So uh, there it is. All right, let's take a quick break. Michael Mulligan will continue as
0: we examine the latest news stories in legal affairs this week, right after this break. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, I was still laughing during the break. I can just picture the undercovers. Okay, what's he doing now? He's watching a, he's watching a TV show about Mr. Big Operations. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, somebody stop him. But I guess I guess in the moment it just didn't click well. Uh, what else is on the docket for today?
1: Uh, the next one is uh, an interesting appeal. that's uh, going to be heard in the B.C. Court of Appeal following a, a Victoria... Uh, uh, case which resulted in a woman being convicted of murdering her, six, her 18-month-old daughter—a so very fa- sad uh, fact pattern there. Uh, but the the issue on the appeal is a fascinating one in that the accused is arguing that one of the jurors on the original trial was biased uh, because the juror was making gestures to the family member uh, or a family member or members uh, of the uh, little girl who was killed. Oh. Um, and so the uh, in support of that appeal, apparently the defense has collected up um, Uh, the observations of 22 different people who were in the courtroom, sheriffs, lawyers, spectators, people in the public gallery, and so forth. Mm -hmm. One thing that was not provided interestingly, and I think we touched on this briefly before, was a report from the judge about whether the judge saw anything. Hmm. Uh, That wasn't provided. Hmm. Uh, But there was a recent uh, decision that just came out from the Court of Appeal providing some further guidance in terms of how this appeal is going to proceed. Uh, A couple of things are notable about it. Um, I think at least three. One is that the court has confirmed that there should be an order sealing anything that would identify the juror, so that person cannot be identified, uh, or their name or description provided during the hearing of the appeal. Some of the uh, evidence is uh, been sealed, presumably with respect to the identity of the juror. And then there's also an interesting reference here. I guess listeners might reasonably think, well, why don't we just uh, hear from the juror what they have to say? Indeed. Uh, Can we ask them? Yeah, because on the appeal, and this is unusual too, a number of witnesses are going to be coming to testify and be cross-examined on the appeal, which hmm. is very unusual. Usually appeals are a review of a transcript and what happened, Yeah, like a record of it. Oh, huh, interesting. But, but there's a section of the criminal code, rarely used, 683-1B, that provides that on an appeal, in some unusual circumstances, witnesses can be heard from. But this is the language it uses, and that's why it matters here. It says uh, 683-1B, a court of appeal can order any witness who could have been compelled, a compelable witness at the trial, mm-hmm. whether or not he was called to testify. So now you've got to think... Well, the juror, is that person compellable? Yeah, uh, and, I don't know. <laughs> and, and we have a case dealing with exactly that. And the case is, you may remember this, uh, a case involving Jillian Guess, if that name rings a bell. Jillian Guess was a juror on a murder trial in Vancouver in 1995. It was a murder trial of a number of uh, people who went on for a very long time, Uh, And during the course of the trial, she struck up a relationship with one of the accused, which turned into a sexual relationship during the trial. Um, And uh, (laughs) ultimately, the jury all acquitted uh, the various accused. And then there was an investigation into Miss Guess and whether her activity of having a relationship with the accused during the trial amounted to obstruction of justice Um, and there are a few things about that that are notable um, first of all, I, I thought some of the quotes from her were great one one of the things she had to say, and this was a very long trial yes um, is she said that after eight months of trial, even the trial judge started looking good uh, <laughs> and then and then described the
0: <laughs> excuse me i just uh had a had a cough there, completely unrelated to anything <laughs> we 're discussing
1: and then she she at one point there was a uh, uh, the investigating her. The police did all kinds of things. They planted a bug in her bedroom like a recording device. They were tapping her phone, doing all these things. One of her other comments was that uh, her attraction to him, the accused, was completely intoxicating. It got to the point where I couldn't see straight. It just became an obsession. <laughs> um, in any case, the, the jury acquitted in that trial. Mm-hmm. The Crown appealed. A new trial was ordered, but they were never retried, the accused on the murder counts. Miss mm-hmm. Guess was convicted. Um, of obstruction. She was sentenced to 18 months. Uh, her response was, I've been convicted for falling in love and nothing more. I have not committed a crime. Well, she did commit a crime. Uh, she served 12 weeks at a minimum security uh, facility and then was released. But with all of those salacious details, the Court of Appeal considered her case and concluded she is not a compellable witness. And so that's why Miss Guess's affair as a juror with the accused matters in this Victoria case. Interesting. Yes, the Court of Appeal cites that case, the Gillian Guest case, confirming that the juror is not a compellable witness, right? Uh, and so that is why, on the uh, appeal uh, of this murder conviction in Victoria, we're going to potentially, or potentially all of the, these 22 people who witnessed it, some of them are going to be called and cross-examined before the Court of Appeal. That's very unusual, but what we will not hear from Uh, is the juror. Interesting. Um, Because, of course, you would think that might be a way to sort of get to the bottom of this. What were you doing? Yeah. (laughs) Right? Uh, But that's not going to happen. And we also won't find out the identity of the juror. So they're going to remain, their identity is going to be sealed. They will not have an opportunity to testify. And the Court of Appeal uh, panel is going to need to listen to these other people and the evidence from the sheriffs and lawyers and people in the gallery and so on uh, to try and determine whether this juror was... uh, Was biased.
0: What happens if they find that the juror was biased?
1: My expectation is that if you found the juror was biased, uh, you're likely to have a new trial ordered. That's the the likely outcome there. Uh, And of course, in that case that I mentioned, the Jillian Guess case, ultimately the Crown was successful in getting a new trial ordered uh, because of the relationship of the juror to one of the accused during the trial. uh, and that got a new trial ordered there, although the Crown never proceeded with the due uh, trial uh, and instead prosecuted Miss Guess for obstruction um, and also uh, prosecuted the uh, murder suspect uh, for obstruction. He received a sentence of six years for that, but was never convicted of murder.
0: Fascinating. We've got yeah. uh, six and a half minutes left. Another two stories on the docket. I think we have time.
1: Yeah. Um, so, in, in some respects, they're kind of interrelated. Uh, so, the, uh, maybe I'll do them in reverse order. That make make, make the most sense. Right. So, one, one of the things which has occurred in the justice system over the past few weeks uh, is that it uh, turned out that a number of sheriffs working at the Surrey Provincial Courthouse contracted COVID-19. Um, that, of course, is a very serious concern because sheriffs are going to have close interaction with uh, other people in the justice system, including accused people that they'd be transporting. Um, and they would also have interaction with uh, judges. They could have interaction with court staff, lawyers, this kind of thing. Uh, and it's become a bit of a controversy because when the uh, it was determined that this group of sheriffs uh, had COVID-19, um, there was a, a warning and notice sent out to uh, Crown Counsel and some court staff telling them of this diagnosis and advising them that they should be self-isolating uh, or seeking uh, testing if they had any symptoms because of the prospect they were infected at work. Um, but no notice was provided to defense counsel who worked in the uh, courthouse, which caused a number of them to be Uh, very upset when they found out sort of through the grapevine later uh, that this was going on because a number of them were concerned that they could have been infected as well as uh, with as much likelihood as uh, Crown or other court staff. uh, And they were concerned that they weren't told of the potential risk so that they could avoid doing things like uh, potentially infecting family members. Yes. Um, happily after a few days there was enough testing done that determined that it doesn't appear that the uh, infected sheriffs infected other people at the courthouse but it produced a great deal of concern over that period of time Uh, and I think it raises some important issues in terms of the balancing of privacy interests uh, versus the uh, interests of people to ensure their safety and safety of other people they may be in contact with. Yes. Because the the rationale for not just telling everyone, hey, by the way, <laughs> these 20 people all seem to have COVID, you, you know, be alert if you had any dealings with them. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't do that out of uh, concern for the privacy interests of the people that have been found to be COVID-19 positive. But not telling people about it has a real impact. Um, And you'll see that as well in other government uh, releases of information about people who have tested positive. Uh, It's done in a way that's designed to maintain some anonymity for the individuals who are diagnosed, right? When there's, for example, a person on an airplane, you'll see these notices saying, well, if you were sitting between rows 4 and, you know, 11... You know, be alert. You might want to be self isolating or getting tested, but they don't say the person in 4B has COVID 19 uh, because that would identify who that person is. And so there's a tension there. Um, and uh, I think there, generally speaking, should be a, an airing on the side of public uh, health and transparency, uh, particularly in a case where. It's not something which would ordinarily be viewed as sort of socially stigmatizing, right? Yes. The fact that somebody picked up a respiratory disease uh, at work, I don't think is this kind of uh, event that people are going to receive social stigma for. It's sort of, well, that was very unfortunate, right? Wash your hands and be careful and get tested. Yes. Um, but uh, that's how the, um, this uh, played out at the Surrey Courthouse, and it certainly produced uh, lots of concern from the groups that were not notified Uh, because they weren't able to take uh, steps to ensure that uh, they didn't get other people sick and uh, that they got uh, uh, tested in a timely way. So the outcome seems okay, but I think raises some important uh, questions for all of us working in the justice system.
0: Indeed, we have 100 seconds remaining.
1: Well, I think this relates to that. Uh, The final case was a man who was uh, convicted and sent... He pled guilty to drug trafficking and he was sentenced to six months in jail. When he was sentenced... Uh, He pointed out that he had a a serious respiratory illness, he had COPD, for which he received medication. The judge said, well, the six months is sort of the bottom end of the usual range of sentence, and said, well, that medical issue might make serving a jail sentence harsher than if he was healthy. It didn't amount to an exceptional circumstance to avoid the six-month jail sentence. Uh, The Court of Appeal disagreed. Uh, and they found that, well, that sentence might have been suitable otherwise, uh, given the medical evidence that was presented about it was a 62-year-old man who was convicted. Yes. And the medical evidence from his doctor is that he would be at very high risk if he got COVID, the Court of Appeal found that that was an exceptional circumstance, uh, that the judge should have taken that into account in a different way uh, and uh, concluded that the man should not continue to serve the six-month jail sentence and instead uh, should be at home on strict conditions for that period of time. So that's an example of... Uh, uh, where COVID can have a real impact in terms of what's appropriate, but in this case, it involved you know a specific medical opinion with respect to this man and him being at a particularly um, high risk. Um, so
0: there it is. Indeed, the balancing exercise shifting with respect to COVID risk incarceration is um, is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. I think it's fair to say.
1: Yes, and uh, you know, it would be better to look carefully at the sheriff's transport to do there, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Michael yep.
0: Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Thanks for your time, as always. Until next week, my friend. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. All right. Bye now.